we all know that uh, our senses can deceive us. We've all had those moments when we swear we could have heard someone call our name, but they didn't. Or we are absolutely certain that we saw Pete Carroll at taco time, but they were playing an away game that same day. The lack of 100% accuracy of our senses has led to some of the most uh, famous philosophical ideas. It's some of what led Rene Descartes to propose that our individual thoughts are the only things that can prove our existence. I think, therefore, I am. It's what led Plato uh, to develop his famous cave analogy. So Plato felt like the life that we experience through our senses is like living deep in a cave, chained to a wall, facing uh, in one direction with the, the curve of the back end of the cave in front of us. We can't see behind us. And if we are, uh, excuse me, and then behind us is a fire of some sort, and there are different figures that, that walk past that fire and cast shadows on the part of the cave that we can see. Now, if you're born and raised in this cave and all you've ever seen are those shapes, the only other real things in your life are the shadows. And you think that that's what the thing is, is the shadow of what you see. But Plato says the real world can only be discovered out in the open air and the sunshine of rational thought and reason, that our senses are like shadows of the object. We have to use our minds to understand the real thing. I've found these arguments fascinating to work through interesting, but not particularly satisfying uh, for understanding life. It just There's no room within that kind of an idea to understand all this sensual world around us. There's no room for the pleasure of smelling and tasting freshly baked chocolate chip cookies, or the comfort of sunshine warming our cold, winter-soaked bodies. There's no room for the sheer joy of seeing my new granddaughter. At the same time, a life lived indulging the senses alone is also deeply unsatisfying. Our souls can't find peace with living the motto, eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. We know in our hearts and our minds that there's more to life than just that. This morning in our series, Reading Through Luke, we come to one of those stories that speaks to us about the fullness of who we are as human beings. This is a story that gives weight to both our thoughts and our bodies, our senses, that fuses together soul, spirit, and body, that accepts the substance of this world and speaks to our desire 
for something more. In this story of resurrection, Jesus reveals that his, this life and this world are, in essence, a preview of the real thing. This is one of the stories that also puts to rest in the attempt to claim that the original disciples shared some sort of vision of the risen Jesus, a vision alone, some sort of mass hallucination of someone who wasn't there. Now, we are free to believe that the disciples were psychotic, uh, but the closing stories of each gospel about Jesus and many of the other writings are crystal clear that the disciples witnessed a fully embodied Jesus risen to new life. In fact, this particular story about the resurrected Jesus is so pointedly focused on Jesus's raised body that it comes off almost uh, towards the end like a Monty Python skit. Jesus's initial appearance uh, is rather spectral, rather ghost-like. Uh, they are all gathered together in a, we know from the other gospels, in a room with locked doors. They're talking about what people have been saying that some have seen Jesus. And while they're still talking about that in this closed room, Jesus shows up right in front of them, in the middle of them. And Luke describes quite honestly the mistaken impression of the disciples. Again, in verse 37, they were, the NIV, I don't know why they have it startled. It's the, the Greek word for literally terrified. They were terrified and bewildered, thinking they saw a ghost. But Jesus dramatically pushes the disciples to trust what they are seeing. Look at my hands and feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost doesn't have flesh and bones as you see I have. When he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. Luke doesn't specifically say uh, why Jesus draws attention to his hands and his feet. The inference is that his body still retained the wounds or the scars from being nailed to the cross. The further inference is that Jesus didn't make the marks miraculously disappear in order that the disciples would be absolutely certain that what they were seeing, the body they were seeing, is the same man as the one they saw nailed to the cross. Jesus in the same physical body. Even so, uh, the disciples still have a hard time accepting that this is real, that it is really Jesus. While they, uh, and while they still did not believe him uh, because of joy and amazement, now, their disbelief is because it's too good to be, to be true, to be real. And this is where it turns slightly comedic. Uh, Jesus says, okay, um, how can I prove it? Do you have anything to eat? 
Oh, yeah, I got some broiled fish. And they give him a piece of broiled fish and he eats it. Uh, again, assuming like if he was a ghost, it would have just dropped to the ground. Uh, but it disappears. So clearly there's a physical body. One of the most fundamental functions of a physical body is to eat food. And the resurrected Jesus does this, and this piece of fish doesn't drop to the floor. So this story reveals that Jesus was resurrected in body as well as spirit. Justo Gonzalez makes an interesting claim about this aspect of the story. He believes that this is not just some sort of interesting fact that Luke wanted to include. Isn't this strange? Isn't this kind of cool? Jesus ate a piece of fish. Gonzalez, as Gonzalez reads it, he writes, the theological emphasis of this passage lies on the true physical resurrection of Jesus. This tells us something about God. The physical resurrection of the embodied Jesus tells us profoundly important things, not only about God, but also us. The most significant point for us this morning is that the physical embodied life we live and the material world in which we live is important to God and to us. Our Hebrew First Testament reading reminded us that God made all of this and it was good. All the stuff of the world, originally it was all good. Cattle of all kinds and bugs and birds and trees and trees with fruit and human beings, our physical bodies. All of this was made and, and the stars and the skies, uh, all the heavens. All of this was created by God and God says this stuff is good this world and these these people and these animals the resurrection stories teach us that whatever comes next will also include physical and material there the truth is that there is something about the things of this world, including our bodies, which is somehow a preview of what is yet to be. It's important to say uh, that what exactly it will look like and the property of those materials is a mystery. Uh, Jesus, again, they were able to touch him. He was able to eat food and yet he appeared even through locked doors. Paul is clear about how in that New Testament passage that it's like, the closest he can come up with is it's like a seed compared to what comes from the seed. That you can't tell what the, the thing is going to look like from the seed alone. But that's how it happens. And it's a miraculous thing. It's also important not only to acknowledge that we don't know exactly what it's all going to look like, but it's also important to acknowledge that this truth 
brings up a lot of difficult issues about the things of this world and our bodies in this life. I recently read an essay by Molly McCulley Brown titled Bent Body Lamb that addresses some of these difficulties that she has faced within her own life. She was born very premature as one of a pair of identical twins. Her sister, Frances, died within uh, 36 hours. And Molly has had cerebral palsy since birth. In this essay, which is um, nominally about being confirmed in the Catholic Church, uh, she notes at one point, I can't enact many of the gestures the Catholic Mass requires. I can't genuflect at the altar or stand up steadily long enough to cross myself with holy water. I can't stand or kneel when the liturgy requires it. And every time I watch the congregation file up to take communion, I think about how hard that procession will be for me when I'm confirmed, which is part of the confirmation process. Uh, a little later, she writes as well. I'm struggling. Is it absurd to adhere to a religion whose most central rituals my body won't even let me perform? What am I to make of all the parables in the New Testament where Jesus heals the crippled and the lame? And most importantly, if I believe we'll all eventually be resurrected back into the world, then is this body, this bruised, broken wreck of a form, the one I'm stuck with for all time? I've always laughed, she writes, at the fanatics who occasionally come up to me on the street and offer to lay hands on me and heal my maladies. It's utterly ridiculous and more than a little offensive. But I won't pretend that being healed isn't a dream I've had since childhood. There are so many issues related to the future uh, and, and our bodies and the physicality of the world to come. And the truth is we don't know how all of it will work out. But I do feel that this story from Luke and others in our scriptures encourage us uh, in our lives to at least two different practices. The first is to care for this world and the lives, all of the lives embodied in it. Again, Justo Gonzalez uh, makes a strong point of this. The one whose life the church shares in word and sacrament is not a ghost or a disembodied spirit. He is the risen Lord. Those who serve him do not serve a general moral or religious principle, not just the natural spiritual urges of humankind. And because his resurrection is not a merely spiritual matter, they, the followers, cannot limit their service to purely spiritual matters. The Lord, who showed his resurrection to his disciples by eating with them, invites his followers 
to show his resurrection to the world by feeding the hungry. The Lord who broke the bonds of death calls his followers to break the bonds of injustice and oppression. And I would add to that particular last line to do that with actions that serve actual bodies. Bodies with addiction, bodies with brain sickness and other needs. The souls and bodies of this world are precious. They are the seeds for resurrection life. The other practice this morning's story encourages, encourages in us is the deep appreciation of the stuff of this world. Paul points out some of what we can attend to uh, along those lines when he writes about, look at the diversity of seeds that we see all around us now. It's remarkable, the, the differences. And it's why I don't understand those who don't stand in awe and rejoice in human diversity. Think of the beauty that is on display in the diversity of human beings, human bodies, different colors of skin, different types of hair, shapes of bodies, and how they work, different ages and personalities and perspectives and preferences. This is all to be celebrated and enjoyed. It would think of how dull it would be if we were all the same. God created a kaleidoscope of humanity embodied. These are previews of an even greater reality ahead. I'm going to close with a poem from Re Rebecca Lindenberg entitled The Splendid Body. Uh, she was born with type 1 diabetes and hasn't always been able to rejoice in her own body. But this poem, she says herself that she wrote uh, in some ways to model for us what it can look like to take joy in the stuff of our lives. The Splendid Body. The Splendid Body is meat. Flexor and flesh pumping, pulling, anti-gravity maverick, just standing upright all over museums and in line for the bus and in the laundry aisle, where it's just standing there, smelling all the detergent like it's no big deal. So what if a couple of its squishy parts are suspended within, like beach-bungled jellyfish in a shelved jar, not doing anything? Nothing on this side of the quantum tunnel is perfect. The splendid body, though, is splendid in the way it keeps its steamy blood in, no matter how bad it blushes, and splendid in how it opens its mouth and these invisible vibrations come rippling out. If you put your wrist right up to it when that happens, it feels somewhat like the feet of many bees. The splendid body loves the juniper smell of gin, loves the warmth of printer-fresh paper, and the sound fallen leaves make under the wheel of a turning car. It knows it can't exist forever. 
So it's collecting as many flavors as it can. Saffron, rainwater, fish skin, chive. Do not distract it from its purpose, which is to feel everything it can find. Praise be to God.